the MVP was a real, like, M, right? It was a real M. And so, first of all, like, the first two deals that we closed, we had no product, right? There was nothing even, like, not a single line of code was built. The way we did it was we were like, hey, listen, what's the value that you would lose if you didn't get this done? It was such a problem, man. And so they were like, listen, we just need to get this done. So that we were like, okay, you know, it's going to be a number of dollars. And then they came back within 12 hours. I'm like, okay, great. And so like, that's kind of like the MVP. The M, there's no code. My name is Mahmoud Abdelkader. I am the CEO and co-founder of Very Good Security, or VGS for short. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lapart, and today help Mahmoud Abdelkader recreated his shadow company to help you secure data in a very good way. All this and more on Code Story. Mahmoud Abdelkader immigrated to the United States from Egypt, from a city 100 kilometers east of Cairo, on the Suez Canal. He was eight years old when he moved to New York City, and later in life, he moved to Maryland, which is where he really started to get into gaming, er, computers. He used to play World of Warcraft and Age of Empires a lot, and through his gameplay, he was led down a path of reverse engineering hacks to aid him in winning. Eventually, he started learning high-level languages, all in the pursuit of building game hacking systems. He got into real programming when he was 16, slinging some C++, and decided that he wanted to be a computer engineer. Post-college, he worked on Wall Street, which in his eyes was where he really became an engineer. After working for a startup, he joined Y Combinator and built Balance, a payments marketplace system, which eventually transitioned to Stripe. Outside of tech, he plays basketball and used to weightlift and do long-distance running. He likes to set goals, crush them, and then move on to the next thing, keeping a well-rounded life. He used to ride motorcycles too, but his wife put a stop to that, especially given that they are expecting their second child soon. Post his exit from Balance, Mahmoud began listening to customer needs. What he heard people say was that they really wanted everything that he built in his former startup, minus the payments. Companies wanted the heavy lifting of data security taken off their plate so they could focus on building their differentiated products. This is the creation story of Very Good Security, or VGS. The companies came to us and they were just like, hey, you know, we want to be able to use that company that you helped build inside of Balance that secured the data and kind of got you compliant quickly so that you can build your company. So it turns out that this was undifferentiated heavy lifting that a lot of companies that needed to operate on regulated data had to do. You know, Jonathan Heiliger from Vertex Ventures will tell you when I first told him this idea, you know, and he invested in us, he was like, oh, he's like, this sounds like an AWS problem. He's like, it's just like building your own data centers. It's undifferentiated, but you have to do it to be able to like get into the space. Right? So what did Amazon or Stripe or any of these like real leaders do for us? They effectively lowered the barrier for innovation, right? And that's really what VGS is trying to do. VGS is not about data security. It's about what can you unlock if you were not blocked by the concept of data security. All that differentiation just went away, you know, because it's not really a core differentiator for you, right? In fact, I would say it's the opposite. It used to be a differentiator because if you got hacked, people went to your competitor. Now it's like, you know, 
it's not a differential everyone has to do because there's laws, there's fines, right? There are all these different things. And so the idea is that VGS really is a way for you to offload and level the playing field so that you can build and innovate with products uh, that touch and you know have to interact with sensitive data or regulated data without the liability or custodianship of holding that, right? So our goal is to give you the same level of agile delivery, like a, like a Google or a Facebook that has billions of dollars on that, but you know, more of a Amazon-like model where it's like a pay-as-you-go, right? So that's really VGS. VGS is infrastructure for moving sensitive data. So that's really the, the core premise of our product because we had to do it you know, for our company just to be able to like build and compete into the marketplace. But you know, we had to do this, build this like shadow company inside of our other company. And that's really what VGS is. It's just, can we just take this undifferentiated heavy lifting away from you to let you focus on your core competency? So the name is really a misnomer. It's actually a very good security is a play on pretty good privacy. The idea is that, hey, listen, we all like used PGP or GPG, right? But like, you know, then the problem is that, you know, it's really hard to use. And so crypto is really hard to get right. And data security is really hard to get right. So most people just like say, I don't need this right now. I'll figure out about it later. What VGS is trying to do is trying to say, well, you don't need to worry about the details of what security you need if you didn't have the data it's very and this is actually really weird because when I start talking about data and I talk about not possessing it a lot of eyes glaze over right I'm serious I'm serious it's, it's really important and it's, it, but then you start saying like okay let's just replace the word data with money do you physically carry cash with you today most people will say no I have a credit card or I tap my phone right and so and so then it's like okay well we took currency like fiat currency like cash and we digitized it, so now we can exchange value day to day with it without physically needing it on us at all times. VGS is trying to say, okay, let's replicate that experience, but instead of money, let's use data, right? And so it ends up saying like, if we build the network, the clearinghouse, the acquirers, the gateways, the processors for sensitive data itself, then a lot of the relevant things that I did for payments or my team did for payments in my previous company start to make a lot of sense now because then you're like, instead of using payments and transacting with payments, we're just transacting with sensitive data, right? And so the whole idea is like, can you build basically an AWS slash Stripe to undifferentiate operating and extracting value from sensitive data the same way that Amazon and Stripe have done it for, you know, racking data centers or, you know, payments today. Let's dive into the MVP. So the the either the piece in the shadow company or right after, right, that you either recreated or pulled out. Tell me about the MVP. How long did it take you to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? You know, the core of VGS is obviously the MVP was a real like M, right? It was a real M. And so first of all, like the first two deals that we closed, we had no product. Right? There was nothing even, like not a single line of code was built. The way we did it was we were like, hey, listen, what's the value that you would lose if you didn't get this done, right? And it was like time and effort. And like we had a company that was gonna miss its like keynote speech at a big conference for like FinTech, like I think money 2020. It was such a problem, man. And so they were like, listen, we just need to get this done. So that we were like, okay, you know, it's gonna be a number of dollars. You know, and then they came back within 12 hours. I'm like, okay, great. And so like, that's kind of like the MVP, the M, there's no code, right? It's just like, is there somebody that's gonna buy it, right? And then how did we build it? Well, 
in order for me to give them, you know, that kind of guidance, a lot of shortcuts were done, right? And so basically what we were like, okay, how do we not write code, right? I am a big, my last company was a CTO. You know, this one, I'm a CEO and there's a little bit of difference. I'm a big believer in that functionality is an asset, code is a liability, right? And so what does that mean? How could I achieve my business objectives without writing a single line of code. That's really where it started. And so um, Marshall and I, my co-founder, who was my VP of engineering at my last company, is now my co-founder and CTO here. We were like, hey, we have to figure out a way to like man in the middle traffic so that we can build a CDN so that we can intercept the sensitive data before it touches our customers' information. We basically were like, okay, so we had to like build a very quick MITM proxy basically to intercept because effectively what VGS is, it's a content filtering network, right? It filters content before it hits your servers and then it lets you execute instructions using fake data that's synthetically generated. And then we can understand the intent. For example, if you post to slash charge endpoint on Stripe's API with fake data, very likely that the data that you have there is like a credit card number. And so we can do like automatic revealing for you if it's going to stripe.com, you see what I'm saying? And so that way you're, you're using the data as normal, but you don't actually have it, right? It's like pushed to the edge of VGS. And so we can deliver it or receive it. So you are completely de-scoped and that's the key. So with, with the MVP, you know, with building any MVP, you got to make certain decisions and trade-offs and you're highlighting a bunch of those, right? Like you, you like how little code can I do um, in X to make sure I glue together Y and all those sorts of things. So tell me about some of those decisions and that process you went through of like, okay, we're going to use this or we're going to glue this here uh, and how you coped with those decisions as an engineer. Yeah, I'll tell you it was disgusting. <laughs> I, really, I, felt, uh, <laughs> I felt disgusted with myself, right? I was like, this is so bad, right? How can we call ourselves? We actually were not called very good security in the beginning. We were called like, we just said very good. And so then eventually we were like, okay, I think we're gonna become a security company. And so the idea was like, like it was just really terrible. And so what I had to do was just like swallow my pride as an engineer and realize that we were delivering value to customers first. And if the customers found it valuable, then we would have, you know, said, okay, great. Right, um, you know, and then we'll hire somebody better than us to basically, you know, make it and maintain it, right? Um, and so what we did though, really interestingly was we, played around with a few things. We actually like hired a bunch of freelance developers and we were like, hey, you know, you build this component and here's how you test it. You build this component, here's how you test it, right? And so, and then eventually all of these developers kind of like contributed, you know, pieces of code, right? Like uh, we like built like a script to automatically add jobs on Upwork, for example. And then the idea was that, you know, some of the things that we had to realize was that, look, we can't obviously see, we cannot see the sensitive data for customers, right? So what I don't wanna do is I don't wanna reinvent encryption, right? And so I was like, okay, what's the easiest way to encrypt data? Okay, great, let's just use Amazon's HSM and have that encrypt data, cool. So then it was like, all right, well, how do you make sure that, you know, this was a time where like, a big, large credit union was hacked, right? And so we were like, okay, and I swear, this is literally what happened. The CEO went to Congress and was like, some developer did it, patch it. Like to the United States Congress, 
this CEO blamed a developer for an exploit, right? And so, and so I was like, that's crazy. And so when I was like, okay, I was like, well, obviously we don't want to reinvent this stuff. So we, you know, how do we basically build on all of these Amazon primitives? And so that's kind of like, you know, we were experimenting with cloud formation before in my last company. So like we, everything was a cloud formed. So what we were like, how do we rely on systems thinking initially to do the security piece so that I don't have to reinvent it, right? Uh, and obviously like key rotation, all that stuff, we were like, you know, that wasn't available like in 2015 or whatever. And so from, um, from Amazon. And so like, you know, we were like, cool, we have a year to build the key rotation, you know, functionality but we didn't you know but you know we can't we don't have to build it now we'll just say like in a year we'll be able to rotate the keys obviously it's keys rotate every 30 minutes now so my point is like you know by you know we've come we've come a long way and so the whole point the whole point of this is like you know how do we basically bootstrap with minimal with the m being literally minimal right and just realizing and documenting hey Here's the decision we made. This is the key part. You have to document the decision that you made and say, hey, I have this time frame to basically patch it or figure out another solution than before, right? So that was like the key thing that VGS had to do initially, right? Because look, we're not gonna build something from scale from the beginning if nobody wants it. And so the idea was like, how do you just glue it together and just rely on other well-tested components to just build the product that you want to think, that you think you wanna build, but you don't really have it. And that's really the whole point of the seed round is like, can I get some kind of traction, you know, and can I get some kind of like, you know, product market fit very fast, right? And so that was like the, that's the whole idea there. And so the good news is like, we were able to do it, but some of these trade-offs, obviously, some of them are still biting us in the butt. For example, we picked Java. Um, I was a Python fan, I picked Java here. And then so Java 8 had just come out and I was like, oh, this is really cool. That was a mistake, right? I think it was a mistake. Um, we didn't use protobufs early on and it took forever to finally get like protobuf messages working through. We were uh, lackadaisical about like enforcing schemas when they were being logged, right? Like you, like, we ended up hiring developers that were like, I'm just used to putting stuff in a database. It was like, well, if we're gonna build a distributed system that has like geographical properties, we can't, we have to assume the database is just like a snapshot in time. Everything needs to be like logged. And this is where we talk about like the Kafka, like Kafka clusters and stuff like that. And so, yeah, yeah, so everything had to be like this. And so we were like, mm, you should just log it. Because if you can log it, eventually if the logging gets delivered, then the event happened. If it's not logged, it doesn't happen. And so the idea was like, how do you train a developer to think about, you know, most developers, like if it's in the database, that's a source of truth, right? And for us, it's if you logged it, it's the source of truth. If it's in the database and it's not in the logs, it doesn't exist. That's a big problem, right? So, I mean, you know what I'm saying? So, so, so that's like, a, how do you train folks like this? How do you like focus on that? And that, that was, those, those were some of the trade-offs, but engineers did ultimately, you know, we were able to fix some of them, but like we still use Java internally, but you know, more and more we're seeing services being built in, in Python um, and Kotlin, for example. But, you know, I think Java was a mistake. So then from that MVP phase, right, and, and, and you talked about a little bit of progression, but let's let's dive into that. How did you progress the product and how did you build your roadmap and figure out, okay, this is the next most important thing to build? Actually, I'll tell you, it's still a constant struggle. 
I don't think we can actually, I could tell you like what I'm going to be building in the next year or so, right? Even now, I, don't know, I think we're pretty sophisticated in the company, but it's really difficult to do that. And I'll tell you, the number one thing was how do I get customers to self-service? I was a big believer in self-service in the beginning, right? And so as you know, like I sold a company to Stripe, our product was self-service, you just signed up and used it. And so the idea was that how do you do it without needing this white glove support? And a security company, especially with the name Very Good Security, you know, one of the things that we did that differentiated us from the beginning was you had to sign up and still to this day, you hit sign up or log in, it'll do it, right? And so that was like a really important part of how do you able to build things and, and systems such that companies can self-service. So that pretty much drove most of our roadmap. And so then we were like, let's review all the customer support issues that customers would come into, come and ask for, and let's build solutions for that. And we tried, man, some people like really gave it a, good effort right for example we were like oh customers want to be able to transform payloads themselves okay and so we had somebody basically be like i'm gonna build this ui where customers can like drag and drop and stuff like that and so they did that and they spent like a year doing this and i was like hmm that's weird and so they ended up building this like whole they ended up building this whole like thing and all it did at the end of the day was like customers came back and were like, yeah, we want a declarative programmatic way to control our configuration. It's like, so no one like wanted to use the GUI, right? People just want to use like, people like, you see CloudFormation, Terraform, all these different things starting to happen. It's like, why would you give people GUIs? Like they don't want GUIs right now. Uh, and so it was really interesting. So how do you, like, so it was really interesting because it seemed like a good idea at the time, but then you were like, mm, it's not a good idea, obviously. Uh, so the other thing was like customers then, then people were like, okay, we'll just give them like YAML. There's this, this YAML craze that's still going on in our company. I'm actually against YAML right now. Um, <laughs> oh man, now I'm starting to share some stuff. Uh, but, uh, but actually one of, one of the things that I think is interesting is like, you know, YAML everything. It's like, oh my gosh, I can't read it. The spacing matters. Like YAML lints, like, like how do you like put code? And so, so initially we put like, you know, put like, yaml driven programming so it was like set variable get context and it was like how do i run this locally and everyone would just be like we don't know and it was like how do we expect customers to do it eventually we had to like do some real engineering and so we were like okay i think customers just want to write a simple subset of code without that's like you know safe to use right so we found like a hermetically sealed non-turing complete language that google built uh, for their Bazel build. And so we took that and we f basically, we were like, okay, let's compartmentalize this and build extensions on top of it. So it feels and looks like Python, but there's a lot of pieces that are obviously missing from it. Like there's no time, uh, it's hermetically sealed. It's like the keys are sorted and search and sorts are, it's deterministic. And so the idea was that, and it has like a, it has like a threads that stops it. And so it's actually open source, it's called Starlarky. So Starlark is the thing that Google built and we put a Y at the end of it. Now we call it Larky for short internally. And so this allowed customers to write Pythonic like code that's very similar to Python that they can like try locally internally. And then I built a transpiler that then could take that code from you and translating compiler and then take that code from you and then give it to you in like Larky. And then so Larky then therefore is a subset of Python but not all Python is valid Larky, right? And so it's really cool because now 
you know, we were able to do all these different things. So customers are now able to like build their own like hashing algorithms that, you know, a vendor might need that's very obscure that we don't need, you know. And so that's that's the whole idea is like self-servicing, but it took us this long to get here. So th these are some of the things that like, you know, you, you were asking like, what are some of the product roadmaps? Self-service was a big one. And then, you know, I think finally we're getting to a point where, you know, finally customers I think can start to self-service. Um, but really, you know, that's been, you know, that now it's like the next roadmap's like, okay, what's an enterprise product look like? Like, you know, what does it look like? What, what do we need to get to the enterprise? Do you really need access controls? That's another one It's like, most people are like, yeah, I need like IAM. And then you, you know, you ever try to use IAM, you're like, oh my gosh, this is the worst design ever. It's terrible. And people with billions of dollars of security budgets still leave S3 buckets like exposed. And so it's like, is IAM really a good solution? Hey, it's TLA plus certified. That's the stuff that they used to prove that, plane, that planes can stay in the air. But did that really protect you? And that's the problem, right? Do you really need, you know, attribute-based access controls, or do you just need like a GitHub protect your branch, like checkbox that basically allows people to like fork and merge? And I'm like, can we apply these Git workflow principles into like the way people do and manage configurations? Just like we have GitOps now, you know, when you deploy, you know, it was ChatOps and now it's GitOps, right? So Git is your source of truth. Can you have like a Git-like infrastructure for a lot of the things that you need to like govern the configuration changes at VGS? And so that's like, that's the part that I think is really interesting in our roadmap. That's going to be really cool, right? Well, let's switch to team. So tell me about how you built your team and what you looked for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you. That's a good question, man. I don't think any CEO will tell you that they have an answer for that, right? We've made a lot of mistakes, right? Um, and one thing, you, you know, the... And it, honestly, I, I don't know what to say. Like, I think in 2015, the common wisdom was if they weren't in the Bay Area, it was, you know, it's not a good use of your money, right? And so I'll tell you what that actually means now, now that I've actually done this. So we were actually remote slash distributed first from the beginning. But what that means is that it's very rare to find people who have, what they're trying to say, but they're not articulating that. What they're trying to say is it's very rare to find people who are not in this area that have built high growth startups in a position where they have gone to a particular scale before, right? And so that's really what they're saying, what people say that, the common wisdom. But it's not, you know, you don't need that right away when you're starting something new. Like most people are starting something new. Like I said, it's the M in MVPs. Like how do you deliver value faster, right? And so the key thing that we've really focused on was culture initially. So like the first 20 hires of your company are probably the most important hires in your company. They set the culture of the company, right? And so, you know, and so we were always engineering heavy. And so you ended up having like a really strong engineering culture, but we were also like not like, I think my, my co-founder and I are very product heavy, but, and we're strong engineers, I believe, but I think we were able to create a more strong engineer culture than a product culture. And so we ended up creating a culture of like, this is such a beautiful piece of code. And it was in, a, in you know, in the, the, the trade-off was, did it add any value to the customer? Most, most engineers would be like, I don't know. And so it's like, well, did you, like, I'm like, okay, well, if the tree fell in the woods, like, and no one heard it, did it really fall? Like, does it really matter? And so it was like, you know, I think that's kind of like, that was like really hard for us initially. And so we've been working super hard. And, you know, initially when we started companies, people like define your values up front. And you'd be like, but I'm like three people, what do I need values for? And so it's like, you know, but, but obviously like, I, I tell you, it's the most important thing I've ever done in this company is like defining values and sticking to them, right? Like 
reciting them, being able to use them in hard decision making. And so the culture that you build initially is effectively a reflection of you and a reflection of the founders, right? And so the first people that help win the horses, you have to just understand, are they the same culture fit as you, right? And I think it's, and there's no quantitative way that I can tell you here's like your culture rubric, right? I think things is, is different for everyone, but it ultimately is what sets the pace for your company and your growth because culture, I mean, I joke around and I hate to say this and I don't even know, you might cut this if you want, I don't care. But the point is like, you can't have the word cult, like the word, the word, you can't have the word culture without the word cult. You know, a lot of people don't know what it is, but I can tell you from a quasi definition, all, all culture to me is that does it reflect the values that you would use to make the right decision making? And obviously, as a security company, we take security super seriously. So like the first cultural value that we have is like security first, right? The second thing is customer obsessed and mission driven. And so the reason why we do that is because, you know, with, without customers, you have no company, right? Also, like you're in service of customers, right? You're protecting the world's information. That's one of our, you know, protect the world's information and make it useful. And so the whole point is like, okay, well, you protect the world's information. Well, if you protect it and make it not useful, is it really protecting it? Like, what's the point, right? Eventually, customers are going to go to an ATM and withdraw their cash if they can't use their cash to transact without carrying it. And so the minute they withdraw their cash, they are now, you know, if they ever lose that, you know, something happens to that cash, they've lost it. There's no like going back. But if you lose like a plastic card, you can always call the card company, get a card back, right? And so how do you do that with data? If you give people the ability or give customers the ability to like withdraw data, then by definition, you've put them in the line of fire where they can potentially lose their data, right? And that's really where the problems come in. So VGS built all these different APIs, all these different things. But the thing that we made specifically was that, you know, how do you build a culture that when they build the APIs, for example, disabled the reveal. And so actually today, if you use our API self-service and you try to reveal the data, it tells you why do you need to reveal this? Also ask you questions. <laughs> and so the reason why is it's trying to get you to think, do you really need to see that? And always 90% of the reasons why people see it is like, well, I got to send it to another area. And it's like, okay, why don't you just send that request with the fake data and VGS will do what you need to do and they immediately see it like, ah, okay, I see now what zero data means. I can have all the value without needing to withdraw it, right? Yes, and that's the key here. Like, So building a culture that understands that and really hopes and understands developers, because at the end of the day, you sell into a business person, they're not gonna care, right? But what you are selling, but the developer themselves, you need to make sure that they have opted into you know your thoughts and that is only going to happen if you build a culture that has and permeates that thought internally so how do we win you know you're asking how do you build a team that wins that uh, you know that, that is the winning horse a the winning horse costly changes right b right b you know people who are not good culture fits should just be let go right away we made several mistakes this way c you should have and define your values up front right and basically say, I, you know, I will do this, this, and this when this happens. If this happens, I will choose this over that. And that's really what you need to set, right? And so, and unfortunately, you know, it might, some folks might not like that, you know, because you're changing your culture for the better. And that's okay. Like at some point, some, you know, you just have to be accept, you have to be okay with changes. And the thing you need to understand is, especially if you're a founder, you have the op, you know, your employees have the option to leave you, but you don't get to leave. 
So I'm gonna double back on scalability. And you already kind of painted the picture of the beginning and, and not building it scalable, but getting it working. So how are you fighting scalability now? Or how did you approach scalability as you started to grow? Scalability is all about state control, right? How do you, like, I think it's just like state management, right? So, and the easiest thing to think about is like, you know, we talk about, so there's obviously software scalability as well as those people scalability and all both in my mind map to state control, right? Like how do you like avoid state? So the point becomes, you know, as VGS, obviously VGS is like a, a, the simplest, most technical terms possible. It's like a giant distributed key value store that where the key is vaulted and the key is effectively like a lookup key. And then there's different ways that the raw data that that key represents has been synthetically generated to some substitute. And that, that synthetic generation of it is like the thing that says, hey, you know, you might have a view that looks like it's a, you know, social security number, but it's not. But at the same time, it might be like, you know, a name, right? Or some other alias or some kind of like opaque token or something, right? And so my point is like VGS is a big key value store, if you will. And then it's all about like, how do you onboard data into that key value store? And how do you, how do you use the non-sensitive data that we've given you or generated for you synthetic data as if it was real data so that you can achieve your business outcomes, right? And so what does that mean? So technically the way this would work is like, okay, well, it's like a giant content data delivery network, right? And so. So from a scalability perspective, what is the edge? What is the edge lie? Where does it begin? At what point do you need to build like, you know, rules, controls, like policies? Because like what happens when regulation passes is so you have to design your system in a way such that, you know, if Switzerland passes a law that's not enacted in Germany, if the data hops through a data center like in Germany, like a lot of these laws have been provably, you know, you can prove that this is exactly what happened to an auditor or whatnot, right? Like whatever laws that you were complying with. Same thing with like a CISO. If a CISO comes in and says, hey, only whitelisted and approved places are where we can reveal the data. Like that's a global policy that has to be set. So set if any of your developers are sending data anywhere, that policy is what's used to enforce, you know, whether that data can be revealed or not. You can't like, you know, supersede it or whatever, right? Or, um, and so, so that in terms of scalability, like that's, that's like the technical process we have to understand. Like how do you build a distributed system and a giant cache, basically like a giant key value store and allow companies to effectively not only deploy, but also like in an agile way, figure out how to enforce all of this across different jurisdictions with like one single pane of glass. So that's really the problem you have to solve. Um, and so it's like a CDN. And I actually think like, Cloudflare has done a great job of doing this, right? And so, um, you know, I think Akamai uh, is a traditional one that's done that. Fastly, I think there's another really cool company called um, Fly.io that's done something very similar to this. Amazon Lambda is a great example of this. Like, you know, all these serverless is an interesting movement. I think all of these things are like very, very key. And kind of like, how do you minimize state, but push the data, right? So, you know, the, the, the compute, is what's changes, but the data never changes. Anyway, so I think that's really interesting, kind of like from a scalability perspective. From a people perspective, how do you scale? I think that's an interesting, and I honestly, I can't give you an answer. I can give you kind of like a heuristic, and I don't know if I have all the answers to it personally, but ultimately it becomes to like, you know, you gotta, you just gotta hire the right folks and trust them to just do the thing. And like, my job as a CEO is just to empower people, right? And so I go in there and I'm like, hey, 
what do you need to get done? Oh, you know, you're having trouble hiring for this? Cool, let's just sync up and make that the thing that we need to do. So it becomes more of like a, it's, it's actually really interesting. I'm trying to take the learnings that I have from you know, building an operating system or building a scalable system and like replace the processes with like human beings and be like, how does this work? And obviously, you know, it's not the same thing, but you know, but you can start to build some kind of heuristics on how to on how to do that. And so, um, but ultimately, the the end, the end goal is like, look, the scale. You're gonna need to hire the right people, and you're gonna need to pay for them. Like, <laughs> that's really that's really the the answer to scale, right? And so, for for people, obviously, it's it's a matter of like, how do you scale your culture? How do you get people to like really think about kind of like the way you do things? But from a technical angle, you know, a lot of it becomes like, you know how do you like rotate key this is such a big big problem that has to be solved that i can't believe someone would have to do like themselves uh without using a company like vgs first right i just feel like it's such a huge huge uh opportunity but also i feel like it's like a you know we're asking people to get fined now because there's no way that anybody can just do all of this we literally spend millions of dollars just building this kind of solution and you know, I don't know who's going to be able to match this kind of budget besides like the big, big companies, right? Okay, so as you step out on the balcony and you look across all you've built with VGS, what are you most proud of? I'm telling you, man, it's the aha moment that the customer, the prospect sees. It's that, I'll tell you, it's the, wow, we can actually unlock value of our data without needing to have it. And it's really hard to say, it's, like, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little bit of a mouthful, but it really is like, you know, I'm the, just seeing these NPS scores from customers is probably the most, like, it's the most motivating thing I've ever, ever seen in my life. Just like them being like, great solution, solves my problem, I don't have to worry about it, right? Like, it's like, you know, an awesome solution, you know, once I see it, I can't unsee it, right? Or something like that. And so it's like, I really feel like that's what we do here, right? Like, that's what, like, like what, that's why we got into this business was like, any sufficiently complex system is indistinguishable from magic, right? There's a quote there somewhere, and I really feel like that's the thing that VGS should really try to go for. It's like, how do we capture that magic moment and really build that that awesome experience such that, you know, folks who have seen it are like, great, this is a solved problem now, just go use VGS. And that's really what I'm proud about, is like, I think we are on our way to establishing that credibility. But I'll tell you five years from now, five years ago, if I told you I was going to build a company where companies would give me the sensitive data and store it for them, you would laugh. I'll tell you, like, you'd laugh. You'd be like, there's no way. <laughs> Why wouldn't like Amazon or any of the cloud providers do this? And so you'd be like, what makes you better than all of these other folks? And it's like, I agree. That's the same thing. But I, that's where I realized the opportunity is it's like, it's such a crazy idea. And we have to do right by our customers and obviously ethically handle their data in the right way. But at the end of the day, you know, customers gave us their data and they put it on us and they entrusted us to secure it. So we can't violate that trust, number one. Number two, you know, we have to make it more valuable for them on VGS than if they tried to use themselves. And that's what we strive for. That's like obviously the road, but I can't talk about that right now. That's really the cool thing that the product's going to be able to do is like, if you have to take away one thing from this podcast or from this conversation is, data on very good security is more valuable to your business than data not on very good security. So who's our biggest competitor? It's just like Visa. Visa's biggest competitor is not MasterCard. 
it's cash. What's VGS's biggest competitor? Data not on VGS. And so we believe VGS has figured out a way, and actually really cool, because there's like six or seven companies that have done this right now on VGS. We can't talk about it, but you know, stay tuned. But it's so cool, man. They put on their they put their data on VGS, and it's much more powerful on our network and our systems than if they tried to do this themselves. And it's like very domain specific, but I think it's so interesting to see the power that comes out of that. So that's really the, the thing that I'm very proud of is being able to actually achieve that. A, getting people to realize that, hey, security is something that's not only undifferentiated, but should be handled in the same way that we handle, you know, cardiac surgery, right? Like you don't go to a dentist and like, you know, perform operations on my heart. You have a specialist. And the same thing we believe like, and then we think that, okay, we think it's just like Amazon, like eventually we will lower our prices because it's not about really security or compliance. It's about the absence of data that needs security or compliance. And it's all about the, and the only reason you need it in the first place is to extract value. So why don't we just jump directly to the point of having value in the first place? And I think that's where, you know, the power of VGS is going to be. And as we lower, as we continue to achieve these milestones, we'll be able to lower our prices so that, you know, security becomes something that like you get right away. You don't have to like think about how much of a budget it has to be. Does that make sense? Sure does. That's fantastic. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. <laughs> oh man, so many, so many mistakes. Um, I, so look, man, I grew up in a very conservative household, it was very strict, right? And I thought potentially that the right way to run a company is to be a strict person. It's not, right? You have to be kind. And a big mistake that I personally made was like confusing being right with being kind. And so I think, you know, it's very important for you to realize like it's about everything just needs to be delivered in kindness, right? And I think that's one of the things that, you know, big lesson that I learned was like, hey, it's all about being kind and empowering folks. That's why people are here, right? Because I'm typically, I, you know, I used to like revel in being like no nonsense, but then I realized like, hey, that's a mistake. No nonsense doesn't actually, that's not my job, right? That's not my role as a CEO. My, my, my job as a CEO is to create an environment that's safe for people to like, you know, um, do their best work and give them the ability to bring the best out in them, right? I'm a big coach, right? I really think of myself as this new, I just started watching this show called Ted Lasso. <laughs> and uh, I really feel like it's this person, Ted Lasso, like that's the right way I have to be thinking about myself. And so a mistake was that early on. And then it was very hard for me to, um, like it's very vulnerable for me to, to admit that, but I just know that it's the right thing to say. And I'll tell you that it's important to keep in mind to be kind, you know, not always have to think about being right. For what you can tell me, what does the future look like for the product and for your team? I'm not sure if you're paying attention to this Apple thing where they're now scanning your photos that are being uploaded to iCloud to kind of see if you have like a um, like child, like, you know, like it's like a, to protect children. I think it's a very noble thing. I just think that the future is going to be, will there always be a trade-off between privacy and you know and or, or or and security and you know and and will we be able to have our cake and eat it too so what does the future hold i think this is the conversation that's happening i think privacy is a differentiator i think that security is a differentiator i think doing it is not undifferentiated but i think 
having it is a differentiator, as you can see from all of Apple's marketing, like, you know, privacy, blah, 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 right? But really, really, it's, you know, what are we going to be able to unlock while being private? And they actually started talking about how they're able to use like these really cool ways to cryptographically match some of these images. And, you know, I think we'll be able to have a more frank conversation about that soon. But I will tell you that it's no longer going to be like, I think the future will hopefully become less about let's put back doors into encryption, but more about let's have an unlock different ways so that we can, you know, continue to maintain privacy and security, but also achieve the outcomes that we're trying to achieve, right? And I think, I think that's something that's a, from a hopeful perspective. I'm not going to comment on whether Apple, I agree with Apple's decision or not. I obviously think it's a noble thing as speaking as somebody has children um, now. And so, but I don't, I may or may not agree with the, uh, with the, with the strategy that they rolled out to the organization. Oh, sorry, to, to, to all the folks who are, you know, holding iPhones. But I, I do think the future is going to look something similar to this. Whether the exact way that Apple did it is, is right or wrong, I'm not sure. But I think it's going to look something similar to this. And I think we're going to see a lot more of this differentiation. Uh, and hey, we let you have all that value, but without privately unlocking, you know, seeing your data. So let's switch to you, Mahmoud. Who influences the way that you work? You know, a CEO, a CTO, an architect, really any person. Name a person you look up to and why. My wife. I ask her a lot for advice. You know, obviously my parents, right? I'm very thankful for them being able to give me the opportunity. But really, you know, um, you know, they taught me a lot of things. Like my dad, like my dad taught me ethics. My mom taught me how to become a hard worker and a critical thinker. And I think my wife just gives me a different spin on things that I wouldn't otherwise have. And I think I look up to her because, you know, she's not in tech. She's actually in pharmaceuticals. She works for a company that does gene therapy right now. And so just the way she thinks about her problems and the way she's able to kind of like articulate some of the solutions that I had a problem that I'd be stuck with. It's just really amazing. And, you know, I, I really like appreciate that she is in part of this journey with me. Um, and so again, like I'm very thankful for that. And so not a lot of folks have like a partner like this. And I feel like I look up to her for that. And she kind of like helps me break down problems that way. So yeah, I'm very thankful uh, about that. So, you know, we talked about a mistake, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? Don't listen to people who think they know best, right? So, you know, obviously I'll tell you like, for example, they were like, hey, hire a VP of sales right away. And you just, you know, without you feeling comfortable that you can do that, don't do that, right? Because like a VP of sales' job is like not to help you sell, like they're helping to help you scale, right? And so, you know, especially going from founder to, to VP sales, uh, that was not like a good way for us to scale the organization. It was pretty costly. Um, number two, I'll tell you some of the biggest mistakes is fire faster. Right, like most people, when they start to hear this, hire slow, fire faster, hire slow, fire faster, but it never happens in practice, right? You always try to see the folks, especially, and this is again goes back to the culture conversation. You know, will I hire mediocre talent? And I hate to say the word mediocre talent, but that's just the way it is. In order for me to solve my current pain point, and I'm not thinking about the future, it's hard. You know, I totally understand that, but it's like you should be relentless on who you're gonna hire. And again, when I say mediocre, I don't, it's not a qual, uh, quantitative, it's more qualitative because like that individual, right? Or person 
can be very, very effective at another organization that kind of like helps them become their best and you know the best self. But you know, again, I, I, I use the word and I caveat the word mediocre here to say like the environment that VGS has might not be the best to have this person succeed. Does that make sense? And so like I think I think it's very critical for us to to have that. Last question. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. They can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give them having gone down this road a bit a few times? Well, first I write a check <laughs> right away, right? It's like, hey, give me in this thing, right? So uh, the second thing I do is I tell them, hey, you know, definitely, you know, like most people have this thing where I've talked to a lot of folks who are like, well, don't you have to have an NDA to like share the ideas or like go through this process or whatever? Like we're not building a new chemical compound or something where some person's like looking for it, right? Like, you know, I, that it doesn't really matter. You work on the next big thing, like you should be talking about it more openly, right? The other thing I think is like build a following, right? One thing I did not do well and I still have not done well is building a following that kind of like expresses my thoughts. I've always been a very private person. And unfortunately, as the CEO, it's like you no longer really have privacy. You have to be kind of like an extrovert. And so, you know, and there's, there's really a lot. You don't, you don't have to be Elon Musk, right? Like that's like a completely different, you know, spectrum. But, you know, you don't have to be, you know, somebody you don't hear about anyway, right? Like, and so my point is like, you know, I think you have to be somewhere in the middle. And so it becomes realizing like, you know, as you think about building a company or build, going down this journey, it's just important for you to A, have a support group that you can speak to people who have gone through the same thing that you it's a lonely job being a founder whether it's ceo cto cpo whatever it is right and then the second thing is uh the second thing that you should be thinking about is like build a following so you can express your thoughts clearly you want but you don't want group think you just want some to express your thoughts so that people can start following you in your journey and uh and then you know ultimately you know please take my check that's like the third thing that you should think about <laughs> i love it well mamu thank you for being on the show today thank you for being on code story and telling the creation story of very good security oh thank you so much for having me i'm very 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 pleased to be here and this concludes another chapter of code story Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.